Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to If I Only Knew, a podcast that's designed to give a deep dive into generational issues in the hope that old men like me and young people like Matt might learn something. Absolutely. Matt, Matt B., how are you, buddy? I'm doing very well, thank you, Fred. It's been great to get some positive stuff from uh, people listening to us. I, I couldn't be prouder of the feedback I'm getting about the podcast, but specifically about you, because you are one of those people that will go on to bigger and better things in life, and you get to say, I remember when, and it's out there in the public zeitgeist now, so I can say I gave you your start. <laughs> Mate, today I thought we'd, um, I got led down a bit of a, a rabbit hole this week after hearing a report on the Great Channel 10 Project which is a current affairs program on Australian television for our international listeners, of which I know we have some. But I heard a report about Zoomers cancelling millennials around skinny jeans. Just think of those words, Zoomers cancelled millennials skinny jeans. Now, as a robust, full-of-figured clinician, I've never had the benefit of wearing skinny jeans, Matt. I know you're a bit of a fan favorite for all sorts of fashion, but it did occur to me that we've got this emerging voice in the generational debate, which is the Zoomers. And apart from the fact that they're setting a line in the sand for your generation around skinny jeans, mm. um, I thought it would be interesting to know what those guys, what that generation sees as absolute priorities. Mm. And when I posed that to you, we did, did our research as, as we do, and we found a list of, you know, these research studies that say, what are millennials like? What are Gen Z like or Zoomers? What are the old Gen Xs like me or the Boomers? What were their concerns? I guess I was struck by what was on the list and probably what are some of those consistent themes. So, mate, I sent the, the research to you. It'll yep. be up on the, the episode notes. Let's start with the millennial stuff. There are a couple of concerns, the top 10 concerns for millennials. Do you want to read them out to the listeners and yeah, tell us what you sure, think? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think this is a really good topic because the whole premise of this podcast is like an intergenerational discussion. My, my question is, are things different now to what they were? So, we start with what millennials and these youngerish generations are thinking about. Different surveys say different things, but this one seemed to focus primarily around a lot of the common stuff. You know, economic opportunity is a concern. Inequality and discrimination is a concern. Climate change is a concern. The sort of political institutions and corruption and that sort of stuff is another concern. Global conflict is a big concern. And then also, I sometimes see mental and physical health thrown in as a concern. Yeah, so that seems to be what quite familiar with as the things that young people are, are worried about at the moment, yeah. And does that resonate with you, Matt? Oh, absolutely. I think what I find really interesting is the way different people order those different concerns, because that's very subjective and it always comes out differently. I think I probably put climate change a bit higher than some of my peers sometimes, because to me that's just really existential. And I wonder, like, there'd be a really interesting discussion as to why people order these things differently. But ultimately, I'd say that's a pretty good summary of what most people feel is a problem with the world at the moment. I thought it was interesting. The North American studies and the Australian studies differ slightly. Um, I noted that the North American study saw the effects of the pandemic on Generation Z or the Zoomers as having a more profound effect in regards to a future concern around healthcare. That doesn't necessarily come up on the Australian surveys because we have universal healthcare. So... But I think there might be, I wonder in the future if there'll be an anxiety around health in general, 
because of the trauma of a pandemic in a generation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I worry about my six-year-old because they've heard all the information and, and it's been sanitized, but it's still kind of a bit nebulous and scary. The other one that's Australian-specific, I think, or not specific to Australia but very relevant to Australia, is how we break the environment down and we also separate things like water security in the oceans from just broader environmental or climate change. And given that the, we're the world's largest island and we're, we also have some of the largest deserts in the world, you can imagine water security and, and those sorts of things do factor in for Generation Z and they're not necessarily new themes. So out of the concerns that they've put out, Matt, what do you think is new or what do you what do you make of those concerns? Yeah, yeah. So, this is what I really want to get to talk about here is what's changed in this situation. One of the things that I think a lot of us young people seem to think has changed is the role climate change plays. That feels like it's a new problem or at least the scope of it's a new problem. I think you'll get to a bit of a discussion about that. Um, it's also maybe some of a sense that economic opportunity or job opportunities are a lot harder to come by. There's been a few more economic instabilities or collapses recently growing up in our formative years having the 2008 financial crisis as a big deal even when you're a kid you still know something's not quite right I think there so I wonder if that's become more acute there's less faith in the perpetual growth of our economic system and maybe people are just a little bit more cynical about political institutions but again maybe that's just me thinking that the world is crap now when it wasn't back then that one that one's a little bit new for me so there was probably more rampant corruption for the politicians of my generation definitely you've seen that you know it's the stuff of movies and tv shows now about police corruption and political corruption particularly in the great state of new south wales where i live in australia throughout that period of the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s it's the stuff of literally they've made series about it on underbelly yeah. it's really well known and there's big personalities and and real gangsters and names that came out some of whom are alive today and uh so we wish them well we're <laughs> friends of the pod um, i don't know about that I, one, Fred. I guess from my perspective um was it as obvious i, I remember you know, people complaining about a lack of accountability for government. I think the current generation has much more a much more elevated expectation of politicians and therefore indiscretions I think they got away with in the past are really in the public eye oh, now. Right. And the public saying, No, nah, it's not gonna happen. And, and look, I would never have gone to a political march where we we're asking for a, a politician to be removed from government. But at the same time, you know, I've never up until recently never seen or heard of a sexual scandal in Parliament House where ministers and potentially the prime minister knew. So if it's a concern, I think that the way your generation's dealing with it is really, really change focused. And I think that's right. to the betterment of everybody. The one thing that's on the list that hasn't changed but has a new name for me is climate change. Right. And those I know there's right wing commentators there that say it's a great climate change hoax. But when I was young, and I mean primary school, Matt, the big issue was pollution. Yeah. And we stopped talking about pollution for some reason, which is odd because climate change when I was a kid was about a hole in the ozone layer above Australia because of chlorofluorocarbon gases that we were using in fridges. When it broke down, it became, you know, toxic to our environment. And I remember where I live, not far from where I live, the next suburb, Matt, there was a big industrial suburb called Meadowbank. Right. It's now all great apartments. But there was a factory there, and I won't mention the brand because it still exists, mm. but they used to make batteries, and they would pump the waste product 
directly into the Parramatta River. Oh, God. So they've done all this reclamation of this area now, and it's beautiful and wonderful, but it's literally sitting on probably the most toxic stuff known to man. Like, there used to be fluorescent green liquid being pumped into the Parramatta River up until, I don't know, probably I was 8, 9, 10. So we're talking about real environmental vandalism, the sort of stuff that you would literally be charged for today. And I think along the way, if you think about where things like slip, slop, slap come from, they come from we have harsher sun in Australia because we have less ozone protection. That was the message when I was a kid. Somehow we've lost that message and we're now arguing about whether or not climate is real when we're polluting more than ever. And you talk about the oceans and you talk about plastic. I mean, this stuff's not new. That's really interesting. Yeah. I guess the focus has shifted away. Maybe some people want to feel like they've made some progress in this area. You know, we've got slightly better legislation in Australia to stop that sort of thing. And it's funny that you talk about the ozone layer is the problem because to my generation, that's one of the few success stories of international cooperation to try and resolve this issue. So, that's a really interesting um, distinction there. Right. I think it's funny, actually, you talked about global conflict off air. And you made a great parallel between global conflict in the past and climate change now. Do you want to take our listeners through that? Because I love your take on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is one of the the distinctions for me between older generations' concerns about the world and younger generations' concerns. I feel like in the past, there was more of a sense that humans were capable of overcoming the challenges that they were facing. And this is an optimism that I feel is a bit lost in my generation. So for me, the existential threat of older generations was the Cold War. You know, you had nuclear missiles pointed at everyone, and my dad talked about the fact that there was this very real threat that the world was just going to end because mm-hmm. they were going to nuke everyone, and that is fucking absurd, right? Mm. And so, that's clearly an existential threat. And I would argue that climate change feels like an existential threat to most young people today because by the time we have kids, I'm very sceptical about the quality of our life, personally. And even if it's not next generation, I suspect it'll be a couple generations' time, things will go badly. So, to me, they're both existential threats. The distinction that I draw that may have brought some comfort to older generations is the fact that the Cold War was a man-made threat that was within the tangible control of humans to manage. So, there was somebody that would have to press a button to make the world end. Now, that's simple and that's scary, but at least it's within the control of people. So, there's some sense that we can manage or mitigate or limit this problem with diplomacy or with mutually assured destruction or whatever. I feel like there's some sense of control that the Cold War brought with it. Climate change, on the other hand, seems to be an issue that is so thoroughly outside of our conceptualization of control. It doesn't feel like any one person or any program so far has had any success whatsoever at really mitigating climate change. We were speaking about the ozone layer just there, and that's probably the only example of international cooperation to help address the environment that I can think of. And so, to me, that's like, maybe that's the distinction is the distinction in terms of what we're worried about and what our priorities are. In the past, we had concerns, but we might have felt a little bit better equipped to overcome those concerns. Whereas I feel like for younger generations, this, set, this optimistic sense of we can solve the world's problems is becoming less and less prevalent. Would you buy that as an idea, Fred? I have a different lens on it, but I see where you're coming from. In terms of the existential crisis that was the Cold War, I want you to think about this. Uh, I've told you my dad was born in 33. He migrated post-World War II as a lot of migrants, Italians, Greeks, etc. came to Australia. 
they'd seen global conflict and then Vietnam hit. Now, obviously, there was also Korea. They talk about that as the Forgotten War, but it was against quite a large communist threat. Have you heard about the domino theory that they used to talk about, Matt? Yeah, You're a smart sure. guy. Yeah. yeah. So the fear was that in, in the Asia-Pacific, South Pacific region, that communism from China would start to roll through the smaller nations and then eventually would be surrounded. Um, it was a big issue that came out of North America, which is why they went to Vietnam. And it was, a, it was a proxy war, which we all know Vietnam was a proxy war. But at home, so the Vietnam War ended when I was quite young, would have been an infant effectively, but the scars of Vietnam lingered for quite a while. Now, you talk about, you know, nuclear war as being existential. We had, you know, one minute to midnight, the Bay of Pigs invasion. I mean, these were real things that if you pressed a button, you know, the theory was you'd lose part of the planet. Yeah. And then there were these conflicts over that ideology. So I think the boomers would say, hey, there was nothing existential about the Cold War. It was a real thing, and it was a proxy battle all over the world. For my generation, the shadows of that existed, and it was more distant, and I can see why it's more distant for you now. With that said, I look at climate change with a much more optimistic view because in my mind, it is very tangible in regards to a fix. See, I look at the generations coming now, how smart they are, how invested we are in science, and the fact that we've just had a summit where China is saying we'll get on board. Now, I'm of the opinion that climate um, and pollution, and I'll use the word pollution because it fits better than me for me than change, is an economic issue. So if we can encourage people to do business in a certain way and make it worth their while, our biggest, you know, polluters, the Americas, we also talk about pollution as being a third world issue. It's not. America's the biggest polluter in the world. We know that. They know that. So if you can get America to change their manufacturing practices and China to change their manufacturing practices and the rest of us who seem to be a little bit more on board go ahead with that, then the next two generations have already got an advantage. And there are smart people you know, developing bacteria that breaks down plastic and we're regenerating reefs. So I'm less scared about that than I was about the Cold War because I see your generation doing lots about it. Right. Do I think we need to act on it? Absolutely, because I want a planet for my kids, grandkids and the future generations to enjoy. Do I think that my generation and the generations before us have a big case to answer? Completely. Matt, the one thing that still gets to me today is whaling. Do we not understand these things aren't food and there's a shitload of other stuff to eat? (laughs) But then it's about sustainable fishing and getting rid of factory fishing boats and, you know, sustainable farming. And in Australia, we farm cotton, which is a ridiculous thing because it's too water intense. Whereas our sheep and our fruit, we have the best fruit in the world, grew up in a fruit shop, West Dried Self-Service Fruit Shop. 59 years, Matt, best produce in the world. Don't worry about cotton. Sell our mangoes. (laughs) Yeah. Do you reckon that um, we'll have to do a proper deep dive into uh, climate change as a whole at some point, but do you reckon that much of these priorities then haven't really changed as much as we maybe think they have? Do you reckon that's your your feeling about this? The the commonality for me was more startling than the difference. Yeah. Again, the big one that jumped out at me, and I think I told you this off air, I finished school in 91. It was all about the recession we had to have. I was petrified about unemployment, Mm. economic security, safety. 
I mean, I'd ask a question now because I watch the news and I know you're really informed. How do you feel about the prospect of buying a house? Oh, Jesus, Fred. Yeah, no, nah, um, <laughs> it seems basically impossible in my mind for where I am at the moment. I'm super lucky, you know, I've got a job and stuff, but it's just, it's not really even my goal for the next while because it seems like a super hard to achieve one. Like, there are ways you can totally do it, especially if you're, you're lucky enough to have family that can assist you in some way or another. But just for the average person without much assistance or whatever, you know, 35 maybe, get a get a proper serious job and, and finally get yourself a mortgage or whatever. If you've got to pay rent at the same time as saving up or whatever, that's another a whole nother blockage. I really see it as being a, a very difficult goal to achieve at the moment. Yeah. So, I think that's really fascinating because the generation before me, the boomers, mm. um, and the generation prior to those guys, they had it great. You know, like they'd say no, not necessarily. But, you know, my parents bought their property for £3,000, which in today's money is still ridiculously affordable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the stats that I've got for that sort of stuff is the idea of how much a house costs compared to the average yearly wage that you're making. And yeah. in the past, it was, you know, three or four years worth of the average yearly wage. And now it's 10 times the average yearly yeah. wage. And it's a really significant income to cost distinction there, I'd say. Absolutely. And, and so... Th- so that sort of economic stability has been consistent throughout. I do think there are different challenges today, though, than the challenges that I faced. Um, and I think that my parents had a much different experience because back then university was free. You could walk into <laughs> yeah. a degree. I mean, let's talk about education. How competitive is it now? And again, I want to acknowledge there's a lot of kids doing their final year of school this year. I think the one thing that hasn't changed is all this bull crap tension we put on kids yeah. about their final exams. Yeah. Yeah. They were doing it to me. They probably did it to you. They'll be doing it to, yeah. to Zoomers. Generations before me, if you wanted to be a lawyer, you turned up and you said, I'm going to study law. Yeah. And they yeah. said, welcome aboard, young sir. Who do you know? You say, oh, I'm friends with a lawyer, a barrister in such and such. Well, they said, come into Sydney <laughs> University and sit down and, yes, we will make you a lawyer. Yeah. I have to tell you my favourite story is for psychologists they talk a lot about how we've got to do extra training now to become a clinical psychologist. A good friend of mine, I won't mention her name, is considered a clinical psychologist because 30 years ago she paid the extra 20 bucks when she put her membership registration in <laughs> and therefore is a clinical psychologist. Oh, my God. That's funny, Fred. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. come on, man. Yeah. No, that's a really good example because I don't want to misrepresent like how easy it might have been to get a job or get education back in the past. But an example like that just blows my fucking mind, you know? <laughs> I will say, though, I think the job market is much more open for the current generations. There's more good jobs and good people. I think the academic stuff is yeah. a bit weirder, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. Education is a huge pressure at the moment. And I really think it's this sense of it doesn't feel like there's a strong safety net if you fail at your education. I feel like there's a sense that, you know, if you dropped out of school and you're 10 or whatever, you go become a manufacturer, you go do some other jobs, you pick up a trade, that's excellent, really positive occupational direction. I feel like that direction, at least for when I was growing up, didn't seem to be as much of an option for a lot of people who weren't so academically inclined. So there was this huge pressure on people to do really well in school because that was the only pathway they could take, quote unquote. Now, whether that's true or not, totally another distinction but there's something about the cultural approach we have toward education that says you have to score really highly in your exams to secure a decent job and that's what your future depends upon not on the idea that well 
maybe you do half decently in school to have a broad approach to things and then go and find out what you want to do afterwards. And I think it's this sense of competitiveness, Fred, where it's like I'm competing against everyone. I'm competing against the world. I'm competing to really get some limited job opportunities for myself. That's how I feel about it, at least. Yeah, and, and I think that's how I felt at your age, but I must admit I didn't have the talent that you have, actually. I'm quite surprised I survived at all. I, I do have a question about that. How many friends in your social circle didn't do the uni thing and became a tradesperson or are working in a, a non-graduate job, if you like? Yeah, I'm a bad example for this. I've gone to a very privileged private school and most of my... Basically, that was the, the school's ethos was university. That's basically yep. how it worked, uh, which in a lot of ways I take a lot of issues with. But um, so, so very few of my friends um, didn't take the tertiary education route. But, um, you know, I know a handful of people who did. But I'd say that as, I, as I'm sort of thinking about here, the cultural idea of what's accepted and what's not, what's good education, what's a good quote-unquote pathway, seems to be the tertiary pathway rather than a, a different approach towards a, a work or education. I must admit I agree, and that was that was a message when I was in school, although there was also a second message mm -hmm. that said, if you're not academically competent, leave in year 10 and get a trade. Yeah. Ironically, those people that took that advice are some of the most financially secure yeah. people that I know. Yeah. You know, the richest person I know is a hairdresser <laughs> and, you know... A really, really smart, sharp, you know, hustler that's great at what they're doing. I wonder if there's also the difference between being from a migrant background where people did work with their hands when they generated his. So, for, my, for example, my father went to school for three years in his whole life. Very intelligent guy. No literacy issues, all the rest of it. Still sounds like he just got off the boat. But <laughs> that, we're at 87, I don't think that's going to change. If he listens to this, g'day, Dad. Um but he went from non-skilled to entrepreneurship, so he started and ran a business. A trade would have been a very acceptable step up yeah. for a farmer's son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I have a lot of trades people in my generation of relatives, and they've all been really successful. Yeah, it really bugs me that I think the cultural direction is away from, or is only toward the tertiary, tertiary direction, because as you say, Fred, we need more people who are practical, who are good with their hands, who do these other jobs. And I think culturally we push people who would be very good at them away from it, at least in my upbringing, that's what I yeah. experience. And I think that that is really stupid. Um, and there's a handful of reasons as to how this happens, and I'm no expert on this topic, but it feels to me as if the alternative to tertiary education that I was presented with seemed pretty crappy to me. So maybe we need to improve the alternative to tertiary education. Um, yeah, I, I think that's happened. I think that's a really important point. When did we stop having real conversations with people about alternate paths to careers that weren't about university? I loved university. If I and I, I have multiple qualifications through university. If I could be there today, I would. Be. <laughs> I guess the other change on that list for me, Matt, is a really pleasant one, and it's something that didn't exist in its current form when I was a school-age student. It's this idea of equality, yeah. recognition, and a really strong verbal activated approach to stamping out racism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia. Now, 
every word you can't say right now would have been uttered to somebody yeah. in some context in a playground when I was a kid. Yeah. I went to a lovely primary school. I don't know if I've ever told you this story. I went to a lovely primary school, really diverse, really mixed. The first time I heard a racial slur was my first day of high school. Right. And I'm like, whoa, hey, hey, we don't talk like that around here. Like, I went to school with lots of different kids, Sri Lankan kids, yeah. um, Lebanese kids, Italian kids, other Italian, you name it. You know, it was just a real melting pot. It was a really great, and I, I distinctly remember the first time, year seven, I went home and said, somebody call me a wog today. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And that didn't feel very good. No. That, what, why people call on people names? Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you lean into it, you, you fight that prejudice. I think the big issue for me now is that if I thought back to, I don't know a single person in school that would have felt comfortable being diverse in their sexuality, gender at yeah. all. Yeah. yeah. It just would difference. not have happened. And I think it caused a lot of a lot of kids in my generation and therefore the older generations tons of trauma. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I still think people punch down on it now. We can see this as a there's a really strong anti-trans sentiment in certain parts of the world and less civilised parts of the world. But I think that your generation and the generation coming up is saying, take people the way you find them. We're not going to punch down anymore. Yeah. There's no integrity in making people feel different or other. Yeah. I think this is this sort of consideration is really why I wanted to have this conversation with you, Fred. And it's because I think that looking all throughout history, it seems as if there's always a sense that the world is going to end, right? Every time, every generation seems to have their catastrophes and the things that go wrong for them. And there's yep. always this sense that this is the end, something's going to go wrong, God's punishing us, the world's over, or more broadly, our civilization is collapsing because of warfare or whatever it is. It's like the world is going to end seems to be the sentiment of most generations. But we have the luxury of being in the future and knowing the world doesn't end. In fact, things continue to improve and continue to grow. And I think that I wanted to have this discussion because it's easy to get lost in the things that feel like they're disastrous, this climate change discussion, the discussion about economic uh, challenges and stuff. But you're right to say that equality is more and more a priority, and this is something we should celebrate. It's not something we should be um, devastated by the fact that the world is um, continuously torn by inequality, but we should say we actually care about it now, and we're trying to do good things to fix it, and that's excellent. We should celebrate this idea, I think. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting, because I wouldn't have thought of it like that, but my whole thing is, it seems like the world's ending. But maybe that's not actually the case. Maybe it's always felt a bit fucked up in some ways. Well, one of the studies that we have, Matt, says that 3% of Americans, when they were asked about superordinate stresses, said everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. The whole <laughs> joint's gone. And my response to that comes from a fantastic uh, Australian talent who's often quoted in mental health, a guy by the name of Dr. Russ Harris, wrote a great book called The Happiness Trap. I really suggest our listeners read it. And he said in one of his meditation, mindfulness meditations, halfway through the deep breathing exercise says, now remember, if you are breathing, more is going right than is going wrong. <laughs> I like that. That's really good. And on those words, I think we could maybe leave it there today, my yeah, friend. This yeah. has been a great discussion about that tick list of things that we scare ourselves with and we all think it's just about us. And lo and behold, it hasn't changed. I have faith that you smart young people are going to get out there 
I, I maintain the smartest thing they did for the environment is give you 10 cents back on your bottles, mate. I'm telling <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. I've enjoyed this. It's also pointed out a few areas we should uh, dig into a bit further into the future, I reckon, Fred. This like is- every one of these, Matt, yeah. they are a gift that keeps on giving. Awesome. Thanks very much, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this one. Matt, as the CEO of a big business, you would know that the thing that matters to me most is my people. Now, 2021 is crazy enough as it is, let alone adding other issues in like workplace injuries or illness. In Queensland and Western Australia, the Back to Work Solutions business is designed to make sure you've got the right people in the role through pre-employment assessment, to make sure they're doing the role in the right way through functional capacity assessment, to make sure the environment suits the job at hand through ergonomic and workplace assessments, and in the event that something goes wrong, make sure people are back to work and in the team as soon as possible through evidence-based, credible, defensible, and very transparent rehabilitation services. So as an employer, it's important that you take the steps now to reach out to Back to Work Solutions to keep your people safe, to keep them at work, and so that they understand how much they mean to you, your business, and your business community. To reach out to the team to back to, at Back to Work Solutions, please call 1300 817 791. That's 1300 817 791. Back to Work Solutions is a licensed provider in Queensland and Western Australia of return to work rehabilitation services through relevant state schemes and insurers. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Better Pod Group production, with special thanks to our researcher, Nicola Binks, executive producer, Matt Blanche, the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio, and of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is this podcast considered treatment, and in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through 000 or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes, and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is, of course, the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.